We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Our series on the book of Leviticus is coming to a close today, and we are are finishing with Leviticus chapter 26. I invite you to open up your Bibles to, to that chapter, and it's the clarification of covenant blessings and covenant curses. Most scholars, and I think rightly, view chapter 27 as an appendix with its laws on vows and redemption. So we're ending with 20, chapter 26, and it's an invitation to us to consider the life or the way of blessing, the way to life, which has been at the heart, really, of this series all along, and is at the heart of God's Word. In his uh, February 1st editorial, um, Ross Duthit of the New York Times writes about the proliferation of spiritual experimentation in the wake of the dissolution of the old order of religion in America. And he cites as the first example of this kind of experimentation a subset of what he calls, quote, the self-help spiritualities that have been attached to American religion since, he says, forever, end quote. Uh, He cites an article about the increasing popularity of manifesting on TikTok. It's an article that quotes an author of a book about manifestation, which is a kind of secular, benevolent witchcraft, a kind of secular version of the name-it-claim-it kind of Christianity. And uh, and what she says in her book about this is she says, quote, manifestation is a catch-all phrase for spell work, for setting intentions, for creating a more honest experience for yourself, for what you're looking for in this lifetime. It's about living an honest life and living a life that is aligned with who you are, what you desire, and the ways you want to show up in the world, end quote. Just wanted to notice from that quote how you are at the center in all of this, what you desire, what you want, how you want to show up. In a sense, what Christianity says to all versions of self-help religion, which place the desires of self at the center, is this. You're actually not digging deep enough. What you really desire, uh, what you really want, even though you likely don't know it, and even though all these other more superficial desires are getting in the way and causing interference, is you want the living God, the God who created you, the God who has made a way of redemption for you, and offers you genuine freedom in life. The God who knit you together in your mother's womb. The God who knows your pains, your heartaches, your fears, your laments. To know this God, to dwell with him, is what we all most deeply long for. This God at the center And the amazing news that we have to proclaim week after week as the people of God in the wake of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ is that God has made a way for us to be in his presence. God has made a way for us to know genuine and true and full and honestly unending eternal life. And this is the gospel long ago of Leviticus, as we've seen. The subtitle of this series is God with us. God longs to dwell with his people, and in Leviticus, God makes this amazing way 
for the holy God of glory to dwell with sinful creatures like us who would otherwise be consumed by his holy presence because he so deeply loves and cares for us. God makes a way. And this Levitical way that God has made, as we've seen throughout this series, is actually pointing to the greater way that God would make for us to dwell with him and for him to dwell with us. The way of God that is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, who enables us to be in God's presence for all eternity. God with us is really the gospel. It is the good news that we have to proclaim. It is the source of our hope and the foundation of our lives. And as we look at Leviticus 26 today, we're just going to consider two points. First, the way of blessing, and then second, the greatest blessing of all. So first, the way of blessing. After the first two verses of Leviticus 26, which are essentially a reminder of the covenant stipulations or the law of God, they are in some ways a, a re regurgitation in a short form of the Ten Commandments about not having any idols in verse 1 and keeping God's Sabbaths and reverencing his sanctuary in verse 2. After that, that sort of summation of God's law or his covenant regulations, we then get this verse in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you, and the answer here is blessing. Uh, the way to blessing, according to the book of Leviticus, and according to the entire scriptures, Old and New Testaments, is the way of obedience. The way of blessing is the way of obedience. Leviticus 26 unpacks this a bit more. The blessings that follow include abundant rain and harvests and food. They include peace in the land and defeat of our enemies, health and fruitfulness among the people, and the Lord's presence in their midst, as we'll come back to. These blessings, they paint the picture for us, and we've seen this theme throughout the book of Leviticus. They paint the picture of a return to Eden, a return to the conditions of flourishing and thriving that God created the world with and created humanity to enjoy. And obedience, the end of this book is teaching us, places us in the conditions, in the sphere of this kind of thriving and blessing that God designed us for. He designed us to enjoy his presence and the abundance of his provision. Though after verses 3 through 13, we then read in verse 14, there's a transition. But if you will not listen to me, and you will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. The covenant curses that follow in a much longer section are actually the mirror image of the blessings. Instead of abundant provision and fruitfulness, there is drought, famine, and starvation. Instead of peace and the defeat of one's enemies, there is war in the land and defeat by the enemies of us, the people of God. Instead of health and fruitfulness, there is disease, decimation, and death among the people. And instead of the Lord's presence, the Lord turns away from them. And this picture of these covenant curses reflects really not Eden, but the banishment of humanity from the garden, east of Eden, in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 3, when they're banished 
from the conditions of flourishing in life, and they ensue into this downward spiral of decay and despair and death and violence. And what this chapter is teaching us is that to obey, to walk after the words of, of the Lord, the covenant king who has come to dwell among us, is to lead us into blessing and thriving back to Eden. To disobey, to not heed his voice, is to lead us into a place that's banishment from Eden and a place of despair. The hinge, of course, here between these two paths is obedience. Will Israel do what the Lord says and experience his blessing? Will God's people, or instead, will they go on their own way and experience his judgment and discipline and loss of life? We actually find the same kind of choice at the end of the whole Pentateuch, the five books of Moses in Deuteronomy. In a little bit clearer terms, Moses says this to the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, he says, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Choose life. Choose blessing. Choose obedience. This isn't only the message of the Old Covenant, by the way. This is the message of Jesus and the New Covenant community in the New Testament as well. We read from Luke chapter 6, the final words of Jesus' great sermon in Luke 6. And the hinge there, what is the hinge that, de that is the depiction between the one who builds his house on the rock such that when the storms of life come, the house stands versus the one who builds his house on the sand. And then when the storms come and the rains come, the house falls and the ruin of that house is great, Jesus says. What's the turn? He says, everyone who hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And then everyone who hears my words and does not do them, he is like the one who builds his house on the sand. The hinge there, according to Jesus, is the hinge of listening and doing. It's hearing and obeying the word of God. As Jesus says in his upper room discourse on the night before he was crucified, he gives great teaching to his disciples and to us, and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And a few verses later, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Basically, what Jesus is saying is love equates to obedience. It equates to yielding to my lordship in your life, to listening to my words and putting them into practice. And we see this further in the rest of the New Testament. The greatest letter ever written, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, is bookended by the purpose of the gospel of God. And in Romans 1, verse 5, Paul says that the purpose of his apostolic ministry of proclaiming the gospel is, quote, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then at the end of Romans, in chapter 16, Paul reminds his, his hearers the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ is, quote, to bring about the obedience of faith. 
That is the intent of God's gospel power is to liberate us and to set us free and to empower us by his spirit to walk in the pathway of faithful obedience to the covenant king that we might know life and know blessing. Let's clarify then a few things about this. Five things to be precise. First, covenant fidelity is not perfection. This is really important. None of us can live a perfect life like Jesus did. None of us is without sin. 1 John 1 teaches us that. Covenant fidelity includes, in the book of Leviticus, it includes tapping into the system of sacrifices and the priesthood and the tabernacle and the day of atonement that God had authorized for his people to be the the means by which God would deal with their sin and atone for their wrongdoing. In other words, covenant fidelity meant acknowledging that we do fall into paths of sin and partaking in the very divine means of dealing with that sin regularly in our lives. Covenant fidelity is about, under, uh, it's about a humble yieldedness to the means that God provides. It is an ongoing path toward obedience, but never one of perfection, and therefore re- uh, resting in the provision of God to atone for our sins. Second, the promise of blessing, which here includes both material blessing and spiritual blessing, the promises and the curses of this text, the blessings and the curses, are given to the corporate people of Israel as a whole. And and this is harder for us to access as like refined individualists in the Western world. But these blessings and curses apply to the whole nation and not to individuals. In individual cases, and this is why this is important, in individual cases, and we all know this, the righteous still suffer, and the wicked still do prosper. And there are biblical passages that wrestle with these realities that we too wrestle with as well. I think of Psalm 73, which I'll come back to later, in which A righteous man is wrestling with God over the fact that it seems that the wicked are prospering while he is suffering. Psalm 44 does the same. The entire book of Job wrestles with this reality as well. Those are all Old Testament examples, but consider for a moment the New Testament examples. The Son of God himself suffers on the cross. Peter and Paul and the apostles suffer. Consider John the Baptist the forerunner of Jesus. He is beheaded by Herod for a party favor. No, the righteous do suffer. We are not insulated from the brokenness of the world and its pain. And it's important for us not to conclude from a text like Leviticus 26, well, if I just have faith and if I just obey God, then somehow I'll be insulated from the difficulties of life. That's just not the way the Bible teaches us. This is a holistic framework in which the blessing is more nuanced than what we find even here in Leviticus 26, in how God works, itself, works it out through his people and ultimately through the gospel itself. Third, this is not a gospel of works. That's not actually good news, is it? That if the good news is, well, God loves you if you keep his commandments, well, 
that wouldn't be that great of news. No, the good news, the gospel of God's grace that we are grounded on as a people of God is that God, without any regard to our worthiness in terms of our obedience and our righteousness, in fact, we were far down the path enslaved and in bondage. God enters in because of his great love with which he loved us, and he shows us mercy. He intervenes. He did it for his people in the Old Covenant when they were enslaved in Egypt. He heard their cries, and he intervened and rescued them, not because they were somehow holier than any other nation, but because of the love that he had set upon them, which they didn't deserve. And God intervenes and brings them out of slavery and bondage into the, uh, through the Red Sea to the, to the mountain at Sinai and then to the Promised Land in Canaan. God's grace is foundational and fundamental in the Old Covenant and in the New. And the gospel that we proclaim is the gospel of God's undeserved love and mercy poured out for sinners like us. That is the good news that God's love initiates without any response or worthiness on our part. And we celebrate and relish that reality of the gospel. And yet... What we're talking about here in Leviticus 26 and what Jesus also teaches us as our, as our Messiah and our King is that to live in this grace is to walk in a pathway of obedience and humble yieldedness to our covenant King whose grace was given to us outside of our performance. How can we see? In the Old Covenant, we see this most clearly at the beginning in the preamble of the Ten Commandments when God says, I am the Lord your God, Exodus 20, verse 2, who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he gave his people the law, which was to say, this is how we're going to live together as the redeemed community that you are. This is how it's going to be under my benevolent lordship over your life. This is not how you're going to earn my favor. No, no, I've given you my favor. I've rescued you from sin and evil and death. I've brought you into life. Now, this is the way that we're going to live. And what we see the logic of Leviticus 26 is, is that God is kind of giving us the boundaries or the sphere within which we experience his ongoing presence and blessing. To walk in the path of obedience is to stay in the realm of God's presence and blessing and to experience the fruits and the benefits of his presence in our lives. Jesus teaches this in John 15, 10. He says in that same upper room discourse, look, if you keep my commandments, he says, you will abide in my love. You will abide in that sphere, the boundaries of blessing. This is about remaining in the grace and mercy of God, remaining in the sphere of his blessing. Of course, and the fourth clarification is the opposite way, is the way of cursing. To step outside of this boundary, these boundaries that God has put up and guided his people into, is actually to step into a place of decreation, of curse, of diminishment, of loss of life. It is to step into a place that we were not meant to be, that God doesn't, in fact, want us to be. And in spite of how graphic the language of Leviticus 26 is from verse 14 to verse 39, what we need to see is that these curses of the covenant reveal the heart of God for his people to walk into the sphere of blessing once again. God longs for his people to return to him to have life. And we see this. In verse 23, for example, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, 
Here's the, the, the analogous situation is every parent who loves their children, when their children begin to run into a pathway that brings not blessing, but, but hurt and, and pain and heartache, parents inflict strict discipline upon their children because they deeply love their children and they long for them. Not to, They don't delight in the pain of the discipline. They delight in what the discipline produces in the child in bringing the child back to the sphere of blessing and life. And that's what we see in verse 23 is that God inflicts these curses upon his people, not because he delights in their pain, but because he longs for them by them to be disciplined back into the sphere of obedience and blessing. He longs for them to return. And what's beautiful at the end of Leviticus 26 is that God always stands ready to receive his wayward people when they repent and turn to him. Look at verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, that is by enduring the punishment, the consequences of their sin, verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. An uncircumcised heart is a heart that's been humbled and yielded to God's covenant requirements. Sorry, an uncircumcised heart is one that has not yielded to God's covenant requirements. It's one that remains stubborn. It may partake in the ritual system that God had given the Levitical way, but it's a heart that is unchanged. It's a heart that may carry a Bible around and go to church week after week, but it's a heart that remains unyielded to the lordship of Jesus in one's life. It keeps oneself at the center. But this heart that then is circumcised, which picks, is language picked up in Deuteronomy 30 as well, means that God will respond to that repentance, to that turn, with, as he says, I will remember my covenant. This doesn't mean that God had forgotten in his mind. This is not about a mental action. It's about a physical action of blessing that God will act to bless again when we return to him from our wayward ways. And this is actually, even in the cursing here, all the way to the end of the chapter, with that idea that this is meant to provoke repentance, I want you to see that this is the heart of the God of Leviticus, the Holy Lord of glory that we've seen all the way through this series and that we see all the way in the whole gospel of the Lord Jesus, the heart of a God who longs to bless his people, who longs to be with his people, a God who is willing and long-suffering to finally hear the repentance of his people and welcome them home. This is a God who looks at the edge of town for the rebellious son and his return. Even the curses proclaim the heart and character of the God of the gospel, who is our God. And a fifth qualification is what fuels our obedience? The key is found in verses 1 and 2. Look back with me at the beginning of our chapter. In this refrain, which we've heard over and over and over again, especially in chapters 18, 19, 20, and on. What's the end of verse 1? For I am the Lord your God. The end of verse 2, I am the Lord. These are reminders of God as their covenant king, the God who has intervened, the God who has done great work to rescue them out of Egypt. 
That's what they were. And then look at the end of the blessing section in verse 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. What fuels the obedience of the people of God is not some kind of fear of God, but it's actually deeply an awareness of God's tremendous redeeming love and intervention on our behalf. It's God's great provision in the gospel that fuels our obedience that fuels our love of him in return. It is the realization that we are nothing if it isn't for the grace and mercy of God, that everything that we are is the result of his benevolent grace working in our lives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you remember that? He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we too say that in our lives, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am a redeemed son or daughter of the living Jesus. And it's the reality of the gospel that fuels our obedience. That's the logic at work, even in Leviticus. So let's turn secondly and finally and more briefly to the, to the greatest blessing. The blessings of verses 3 to 13 actually move toward a crescendo. And they reach the, the climax and the high point in verses 11 and 12. God says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. God walking among us. This should, this should reverberate for us. The, the word here used for walking is the same word used in Genesis 3, that the Lord walked among humanity in the Garden of Eden. This is a restoration again back to Eden. There is in verse 11 an acknowledgement of the tabernacling presence of God in the midst of his people, which God has affected in the book of Leviticus, which is a kind of restoration to Eden. But remember, the tabernacle itself is a kind of mini-cosmos. It's a model of the universe in which God is present. So the tabernacle itself is pointing beyond itself to a day when the, the conditions of creation, where God walked among humanity in his created order, would one day be restored. When we would be found again to walk in God's very presence. The Levitical way that God had provided to restore his presence to his people was pointing toward a day when God's presence would once again walk among his people in a new heavens and a new earth. A holy God with a holy people in a holy Cosmos, And this is all glimpsed in verse 12 of Leviticus 26. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. This promise pushes beyond the boundaries of the book of Leviticus. It would be the result here of the people's obedience, of growing in holiness, of listening to his words, of growing in holiness by enjoying and delighting in, tab in his tabernacling presence, Sabbath by Sabbath by Sabbath. But we know that wasn't the story that they followed. That wasn't the trajectory. The trajectory of Israel was actually in the, tra the tra trajectory of the curses in Leviticus 26, climaxing in their exile from the land. But the promise of verse 12 remained. And in the Lord Jesus... God in the person of his son entered into our world and lived a life of covenant fidelity to perfection, unlike us. The, the covenant fidelity to which God's people had been called. And the result was the fulfillment of the greatest blessing of all. God 
did in fact walk among us again in the person of his son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And yet because of the atoning death and sacrifice of his son, the greater ascension offering, the greater purification offering, the greater reparation offering, the greater communion offering, offered by the greater high priest, Jesus, the son of God, God brought about a greater cleansing which inaugurated a greater inhabitation of his people, a greater dwelling with his people. As the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross, and God's presence was unleashed upon his world in a whole new way, in the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. God inaugurates a new temple and a new dwelling place, as we've seen throughout this series. And the, and the, the promise of Leviticus 26.12, that I will walk among my people again, is actually quoted by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 as at least fulfilled in some way in the church, the very people of God, because the Spirit of God now dwells among us, in a sense, walks among us. And for that reason, Paul urges us to reject idolatry because of the very Spirit's presence in us. And so Leviticus, this promise, 2612, is somewhat fulfilled in the New Testament age of the church and the Spirit. And yet, there is more, and Leviticus points us to this more. In this world of ongoing weakness and suffering, where we groan with the Spirit, where the Spirit himself intercedes for us in groanings too deep for words, we now see only as in a mirror dimly. It's a partial fulfillment. Then we shall see face to face. We are awaiting a greater fulfillment of the greatest blessing to which Leviticus 26 verse 12 points us, of God with us. This is not in any way to diminish or to deny or to cheapen the reality of what we enjoy now as the new covenant people of God in the very presence of God and his spirit dwelling in us. But this presence of God points us upward and onward, deeper and deeper to a brilliance that will one day be ours in the, new in the full consummation of the new creation where the blessings of the new heaven and the new earth will be that God now again dwells with his people and we dwell with him. We read about this in the climactic passage of Scripture in Revelation 21 and 22. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The new Jerusalem. The new creation is when Leviticus 26, 12 will be finally fulfilled. That is when we shall see him face to face. That is when all that God is pointing to in Leviticus will be fulfilled, when the restoration of Eden will be completed. And that is when God with us will be so fully and finally true that there will no longer be any doubts, any pain, any sorrow, any suffering. For now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. And this future is the final blessing to be entered into by the covenant people of God, whose hearts are yielded to him and know his blessing even now. God in our midst, God at the center, not ourselves. And keeping this hope in our sights fuels even more our yieldedness to him in this present day of groaning and suffering.
that is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. On the day of Peter Badu's death on Wednesday by cardiac arrest, before we heard the news uh, during our staff chapel, we read Psalm 73 together. And the end of this psalm expresses the chief insight of the entire scriptures that the presence of God is everything. It is the gospel. It is the great reward. The psalmist cries out, the righteous sufferer, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Though indeed Peter's bodily heart did fail that day, Nevertheless, God remains the strength of his heart and his portion forever. And what Peter knew in this life, that his good was to be near God, he now, with all the saints who have gone before him, many of whom we have loved deeply, experiences in a whole new way as one who is absent now from the body and present now with the Lord, the reality that the nearness of his God is his good. Experience this, is this in a way that I trust if we could hear him now, he would say, with the people of God of Leviticus, with the people of God who have known the truth of God's love, and with all the people who live in the light of the gospel and enjoy, as Peter himself did, the presence of the Holy Spirit. God is my reward. God is my treasure. For me, it is good to be near God. The reality is that one day all the hearts in our bodies will fail. But on that day, and this we believe, and I mean this, not in a way that is to minimize the tremendous grief of this moment for many of us, and the loss that is inexplicable, and that we mourn. But that day will be one step closer to the ultimate blessing of life in the presence of God. A life that will carry on, not for a week, not for a year, not for 29 years, for 49 years. For 85 years, but forever and ever and ever. And this truth and hope sustains us in our grief and motivates us to walk in the obedience of faith, to follow the outstanding example of covenant fidelity given to us by Peter Badu. How long the more I have heard of Peter's life, 
and I knew him, but not as well as many of you. I long for us to follow in the example that he has left us, an example of love and care and obedience to his covenant king, who was so present in his life that all around him knew it. And I long for us to enter into this God's presence more and more so that when we enter into his presence as Peter did on Wednesday and join in worshiping him in heaven until that day that he returns to make all things new, to make the cosmos his dwelling place, to be our sun and our light, that we could do so with no regrets and with tremendous joy to be received as Peter was received, no doubt, with the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. God with us. Us with God. This is the gospel. This is our hope. And this is our present reality, even amidst the tears. Oh God, we praise and worship you that you have made a way, a way unimaginable to any human mind, a way that confounds the ways of the world and the wisdom of the world, a way that is so beautiful and perfect and reassuring and foundational that it gives us as your people tremendous confidence and hope, even in our grief. God, we praise you for being the God who has made a way to be among us by your Holy Spirit, even now through the gospel of your Son. We praise you for foreshadowing that way thousands of years ago in giving the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the priesthood to your people. And God, we thank you that we belong to you, body and soul, and that nothing, height nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, neither height, nor neither life, nor death, nothing can separate us from the love of God, your love, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we praise you, and we join our voices with the heavenly host who cry out to you, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is, and who is to come. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.